everyone, and welcome to Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior, and I am here with Shelf Specialist John Whitten for the twenty seventh episode. <laughs> Good morning, Mike. How are you, John? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you. Have so you much. earned your tea break this month? I absolutely have. I've been filming. I've been writing. I've been teaching. I've been cooking scones. Yesterday, <laughs> I was able to give two people their first ever cream tea. Oh wow! Which was extremely exciting. That's fabulous. And did they break with decorum by going jam or cream first? <laughs> I tell you what, there wasn't much of an opportunity for faux pas. Well, you know that the Queen has weighed into this whole debate. Wait, really? I'm thrilled to hear that. I thought she didn't weigh into kind of mortal matters. Well, not personally, but apparently a chef who cooked for her for many years has laid it down ah. that the Queen officially prefers the jam first option. <laughs> but I'm sure she would be far too much of a discreet monarch to do anything but put the cream on first if a visiting dignitary led the way. <laughs> you know that Queen Victoria story, don't you, about the finger bowls? Oh, absolutely. Although I didn't realise it was Queen Victoria. Anyway, just for the benefit of any listeners who haven't heard this one, recap it for us there. I'm sure it's been, you know, George Bush and Genghis Khan in different examples, but <laughs> the true story is that, is that Queen Victoria hosted a great and beautiful banquet for many um, of the great and good, including a visiting foreign dignitary from China, the Ukraine, South America, or the moon. Fill in as appropriate. Yes, fill in as appropriate. And part of the place settings, there were a hundred forks and a thousand knives and the rest, and there were these little bowls with a bit of water in the purpose of which was to rinse your fingers off. They were clearly having asparagus spears or something of the like. Well, there we go. Mm -hmm. Something that it's okay, even in the politest company, to grab at with your filthy mitts. Mm. And the foreign dignitary, obviously not being versed in the finer points of fine British dining, took up this bowl and drank from it. Gasp! Gasp! And this was a couple of courses in. So most people's bowls were full of their gross finger juices at that point. But just assuming it was a tea or, or some such, this dignitary drank it. Queen Victoria saw this and th there was a silence that descended over, <laughs> over the whole hall at how such a horrible faux pas could have been committed. And Queen Victoria, without missing a beat, took up her own bowl and, and drank from it as well. At which point, of course, no one had any option <laughs> in the entire world. But to join in. And everyone drank from their finger bowls. And that's a story that makes us feel better about being ruled over by taxpayer-funded oligarchs. <laughs> well, the thing I've always wondered about that story is, assuming that you knew that the finger bowl was just for your fingers, mm. whether maybe someone at that point was caught out having inappropriately used their finger bowl for other purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope someone had stubbed their fag out in it or something. <laughs> oh, got rid of some chewing gum. Exactly. I hope that very much. Anyway, so that's a long apocryphal story about the British monarchy, because why not? <laughs> but I have earned my tea break this month, if only by spreading the good news of cream teas, which I think are the official meal of Project Studio Tea Break. Mm. How about you, Mike? Have you Is this earned, or are you here under false pretenses? Well, there has been a certain amount of work involved with the new SOS podcast that I'm doing, so yeah, I think in that respect I've earned my tea break. Okay. And it has led to some, well, I can only describe it as deeply troubling follow-up. Oh dear. For both of us. I mean, tremble already in trepidation. I have some follow-up that's deeply troubling for you. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe kick off with the stuff that's deeply troubling for me. Start with that one. Are you sure? Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, this brings us back to um, our legendary 
influencer battle. Oh, as right. to who can tick better talks. Yes. And Mike, you have you've come up at time of recording. I'm looking at it right now. Yes. You've climbed up to a very respectable 41 likes. Well, I mean, not to be sniffed at. Not to be sniffed at, mm. unless you're someone like me with 46 likes. <gasps> no, you haven't. How did that happen? Have you been launching a social media campaign? <laughs> a, a grassroots swell apparently has come out in support oh, wow. of, of my truly awful videos. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. He said through gritted teeth. Yeah, so I guess <laughs> I'm the young trendy one. I think you are. I gotta say, I think that the competition between us, mm. at least until you can rally some serious virality, may be over because I, I just don't see the point in competing when I'm already five likes ahead. Well, I mean, that's a huge mountain to climb. So I've set my sights on my next TikTok project. Okay. Which is to overtake Justin Bieber, who has 56 likes. <laughs> so that's going to be a slog. Yep. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. I have faith in you, John. I oh, think you can... Oh, sorry, that is 56 million. Okay, so... <laughs> can you get one of those Sharpies and just put a little M next to the number on your phone screen? I'll just put your thumb over that bit of the screen when you're looking at it. Hey, that's a TikTok just there. <laughs> I already do. And it does make me feel a lot better. Mm, mm. But... Oh, God, he's very good at TikTok, is Justin Bieber. But you see, this relates to my own deeply troubling follow-up. Oh, yeah. You see, despite your clear numerical and moral victory here, right. there is clearly sedition in the ranks of Team Nick. Oh, dear. Because I had a mail from the man himself. Mr. TikTok? Yeah, Nick of Team Nick. Okay, yeah. Your, your own esteemed figurehead. My man. And I quote, <clears throat> It was especially heartrending. To go against hashtag Team Nick. <gasps> but I had to act with integrity. Oh, no! <laughs> did you, Nick? I, did you really? I fired up the This is Ludovico Einaudi playlist on Spotify. And at first, I thought it was quite pleasant. And that John would clinch the tiebreaker. But then I went through each track, skipping about quite a lot. Nick! Christ, the monotony. <laughs> Phoning it in comes to mind. Oh my God! <laughs> Nick! <laughs> I don't know. If you lived next to the, the, the beautiful Sien River and every morning you woke up and you got to see it charting its ineffable <laughs> path. I don't know, would you whinge that it was too similar? <laughs> Why am I trying? You've already cast your vote. You're, you're dead to me now. This is... But, I mean, despite the et tu Nick moment, mm. my joy, however, was short-lived. Oh, no. Because he also mentioned that he'd heard my first San Altan podcast. Oh, cool. And amongst his comments, he said, I can't believe you glossed over the totally anachronistic theme tune that, to my ear at least, sounds about 30 years out of date. <laughs> It was like a VHS tape about using the latest in technological convenience. Electronic mail. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, I did that theme myself only last month. <laughs> oh, oh, we have both been humbled. <laughs> and what is more, I did it using a bunch of old sample libraries that I had left over from working at SOS. <laughs> but those were only 15 years out of date. <laughs> 15 of those years were all you. But the problem is this leaves me in a real bind, because... Either Nick has impeccable taste because he sided with me about Einaudi, Gosh. or he has lousy taste because he hasn't appreciated my finger on the pulse podcast theme music. Either you and Einaudi are both hacks or you're both geniuses. Which do you choose? <laughs> Will you fall on this sword? I might even have to label myself as a hack to retain my Einaudi moral high ground. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least in my defence... If I'm creating music that is equally hacky as Einaudi, mm. it did only take me a couple of hours, as I imagine it takes him. 
<laughs> okay, I will be the first, well, not the first, I will be somewhere in the line to admit that Iron Audi has found a style which works for him, but I have it on good authority that in his next album, he's going to be exploring kind of dreamy solo piano works. <laughs> And that surely has got to be worth a look. So It's a dramatic departure. Oh, absolutely. There's a danger that he might leave his established fans behind on that. And I think he must know that. It's bold. But if you're not reinventing yourself as an artist, what are you doing, you know? If you don't go somewhere new, you can't come back. That, you know, the, the artist formerly known as Iron Audi is, I believe, the name <laughs> this album, which will probably be called Whispers of water or something mm. so you know look out for that it's going to blow you all out the water um i believe there are upper extensions in some of the chords and extensive use of the sustain pedal uh, i really can't say more but, but there is more from nick though oh oh is is there nick uh, i quote again nick he said similar to another listener the podfaster i believe was his vigilante name <laughs> i listen to most podcasts at 1.4 speed even Project Studio Tea Break. Oh my God! Blimey. <laughs> the bravery. I know. <laughs> he listens to news podcasts at two times speed. Anyway, but have you ever tried listening to a podcast at slower speed? <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's amazing. It makes everyone sound drunk. Give it a shot. Now, I felt that with such a challenge, we couldn't but give it a shot. I don't think we can. Oh, I don't know what you mean. Check this out. You can do twinkly synth stuff, or you can do like heavy rock stuff, and those are the two genres of music. Oh my god! <laughs> and you can use either of them. I mean, the difficulty will be that the highlights will be really high, but the lowlights will be really low, wouldn't they? That's good, isn't it? <laughs> Mike, I feel like that's two ancient mountain trolls the size of Gog and Magog just discussing their ironic takes on music. It could give a whole new life to the Project Studio Tea Break back catalogue. Was that us? It was from last episode. Oh my God, really? <laughs> It gives it an absolutely fresh sound. Mm. I'm excited for a bunch of reasons. Partly because for the people listening at 1.4 speed, that's going to be the only normal sounding bit of the entire episode. <laughs> We're going to really play with Nick's mind when all of a sudden it switches to normal speed. Exactly. <laughs> it's revenge. And then also, just because I am nothing if not um, contrarian, I'm going to deliver the next bit in a way that two the greatest extent possible, is completely inaccessible to those doing the same thing. <laughs> so Nick has followed me on TikTok recently, and I'm very grateful for his patronage. Even if his Audi opinions are slightly off-piste, but his username is the best thing that I've ever seen. It's at PSTV made me do this, and I think it's just amazing I've messaged him to say as such. Nick, thank you for your patronage, but listen to more piano music. I think you'll find that it's more than you know, and greater than you realise. Chopin could learn a lot from this guy. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's really hard. I don't know if you've tried to do that recently. Yeah, I think I might have bust something actually. I'm not gonna stand <laughs> up now for a while. <laughs> Now, as an established manufacturer of new and exciting instruments, John, mm. you will be as pleased as I am to hear news of a groundbreaking new musical instrument that's been developed this month. And here it is in action.
So it is a glorious sounding kind of sci-fi resonant thing. How did it strike you? Have you ever seen the movie Avatar with the blue aliens? Oh, yes. That live in harmony with nature and have strange natural technologies with fungus and bioluminescent fireflies. Mm. It sounds like their laptop startup sound. <laughs> I, I can imagine that when they press the power button, it's a soft, natural, kind of slightly evolving, non-threatening pad. It has that sense of... The sound of the earth somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's beautiful. That's so exciting. I mean, depending on how loud it is, it may also be awful. Well, it's funny you should say that because let me now clue you in as to what this instrument actually is. You see, this month, San Francisco completed renovations on the Golden Gate Bridge. Really? Including a new set of railings for the pedestrian walkway. Right, okay. And it turns out that whenever a strong westerly wind hits the bridge, these resonate (laughs) very loudly. (laughs) It's audible all around San Francisco because it's so loud. Right, okay. Uncomfortably loud for people driving across the bridge in their cars. Now, I checked, and there is no Guinness Book of World Records record for the largest musical instrument. So, to be honest, I think this is a shoe-in for our second ever Project Studio Tea Break World Record. (laughs) I mean, I I don't think it's any less expressive than... uh, Alpenhorn or a didgeridoo or something. Well, okay. It's got range. I'm actually learning didgeridoo and I'm still awful at it. Mm. And I can say that so far, at least, the the bridge wins (laughs) in terms of musicality. (laughs) Like, we have a good giggle here, Mm. but I think it really is expressive. I um, I agree. There's bowed cymbals in there. There's this sort of feedbacky noises. Yeah. It's got ominosity, which is a word now. It's got depth. (laughs) Um, Those good things notwithstanding, though, it does raise a number of questions. Oh, yeah? Firstly, seeing as it's a wind instrument, Mm -hmm. is it transposing? (laughs) (laughs) If we get a gale force wind, will we get overblown notes? This is a very good question. And how do you tune it? I think you tune it by the number of cars and which direction they're moving. Yes. That has to be, because that's going to change the tensions on the strings. Could you fine-tune with pedestrians, do you think? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) And then kind of the really microtonal stuff, you give each of those pedestrians a dog. Yeah. Absolutely no doubt. (laughs) Though I will take issue with your supposition that this is a wind instrument. Oh, okay, right. Now, having not seen a picture of these railings myself, if they're the things making the noise, then this is a string instrument. Well, Oh, but you could say they're like a vibrating reed, though, because you do have a double reed instrument. This could be a multi-reed instrument. You could. Is there a wind-driven string instrument? Actually, there is. There absolutely is. They're gorgeous. I wanted to build one a while ago. Oh, right. Educate me. They're called Aeolian harps. Yeah. And they are normally literally just triangular prisms stuck on their triangular end, if you can imagine that. And you string them with very thin nylon a lot of the time over, you know, a bridge at either end at some tension. Okay. And as the wind blows past it, it excites the string. You get this very beautiful, strange sound. In fact, let's just chuck a quick clip of that in here. Oh, that is very similar. And in fact, this might then answer my subsequent question, which was... What's that? What should this be called? 
A bridge aeolian harp. The world's largest aeolian harp seems to me to be what this is. The Golden Gate aeolian harp. The Golden Gate aeolian harp. I feel like there has to be a pun there somewhere. I can't find it. <laughs> San Franciscoian. It's just, it's, there's nothing. That's really frustrating. And the great thing is that now that we have a name for it as the San Francisco aeolian harp, it means that surely it can only be a matter of time before someone creates a banjo hybrid. The <laughs> San Francisco alien harp Joe. <laughs> John, what kind of stuff do you know about Eric Sati? Oh, wow. The 16-year-old me really hated him because he wrote gorgeous, angular, strange, interesting music, but yet said that he wanted his music to be treated as sonic wallpaper. Right. And that pissed me off because I thought music should be... Att- well, I thought specifically my music <laughs> should be attended to, that people should shut up, sit down and listen to it. But if he, with his genius, thought that his music should be wallpaper, then that made mine basically doilies. Yeah. <laughs> or um, skirting boards. You were the carpet underlay. <laughs> That's the non-slip <laughs> carpet underlay in a room that isn't even being used for the party, is how that made me feel. So I hated him for that, and I loved him for answering the accusation that his music lacked form by writing Peace in the Form of a Pear, <laughs> which is a piece of music that he thought looked like a pear. So, you know, mixed bag with Eric Satie. Have you ever heard of his single-page piano work, Vexations? I haven't, no. Okay, well, let me fill you in, because... Sometime in 1893 or 1894, Mm. he wrote a single-page piano work called Vexations that was only eventually published after his death in 1949 and uh, received its premiere more than a decade later. Okay. Now, you might very well ask... Why did it only receive its premiere only more than a decade later? I might. He was a popular composer during his lifetime. He had no trouble getting stuff premiered. What could have happened? It could be that it's all written with ridiculous enharmonic notation, you know, where he could have just written it out normally. (laughs) He threw in a mixture of, like, random sharps and flats and some double flats for good measure. It's almost impossible to sight read. (laughs) But more likely, it could be because it bears the following inscription. Mm Mm-hmm. In order to play the theme 840 times in succession, it will be advisable to prepare oneself beforehand and in the deepest silence by serious immobilities. 840 times. So I think you and I would both assume that means that he intends for this piece to be played 840 times in succession. Well, yes. Now, if I could ask you to take a guess about who might have premiered this work in its entirety, who would you guess? Oh, I mean, my first thought is John Cage. He loves that nonsense. It's John Cage! Is it actually? (laughs) It was John Cage in 1963 with the help of a dozen other pianists, including... John Cale. Oh, wow. Future Pulitzer Prize winner Daniel Del Tredici. Okay. And Howard Stein, who was the New York Times critic who'd been sent to review the concert. He <laughs> <laughs> wound up playing it as well. <laughs> and apparently fell asleep at about four in the morning. <laughs> this thing went on for more than 18 hours. Oh, my word. But in brilliant John Cage style, he set the admission at $5, but had a time clock at the front desk and offered a five-cent refund for every 20 minutes attended. So John Cage. (laughs) His reasoning was, in this way, people will understand that the more art you consume, the less it should cost. (laughs) 
But surprisingly enough, that is not my favourite detail about the premiere performance. Mm-hmm. My favourite detail was that at the end, one of the very few remaining audience <laughs> stood up and shouted, Encore! <laughs> <laughs> That is magnificent. And you know, you just know that they'd come up with that six hours ago. And they had planned to go back home, but then they'd come up with this joke. And there's no other time in the history of the universe when it will be as good. And so you just make peace with the fact that no bathroom breaks, no nothing. You you are there for the long haul. Oh, that's... So wonderful. But why, you might also ask, is something that happened in 1963 and was composed in 1890, whatever, (laughs) appearing in the Project Studio Tea Break News? Well, it is because Mm -hmm. on May the 20th, 2020, we saw this piece's first live stream. Wow. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic. That is really wonderful. Pianist Igor Levitt set himself up in a studio in Berlin and rattled through the piece in a comparatively sprightly and jocund time of 15 hours or so. Wait, it sounded like you only said the name of one pianist there. One pianist did it. Heavens to Betsy. He had like two or three loo breaks, because he had like snack foods and drinks and things set up beside him. You can see him occasionally reaching for the peanuts. (laughs) (laughs) Also what he did was, he printed out all of the 840 repetitions on separate sheets of paper. So you see this massive pile of paper on the piano. And and every time he does one, he takes it off the stand and puts it on the floor. So he's just surrounded by all these sheets. That is so good. And even better... He then decided to uh, auction off all those sheets of paper to help like out-of-work musicians after the fact. That is brilliant. It's very good. Although it did waste the opportunity for a surprise ending. Because apparently there was a 2017 performance where the audience didn't even realise it was over until the pianist stood up and <laughs> walked off. I think, I think even better than a surprise ending would be a surprise beginning. Just don't let people know that it's going to be part of... Put it halfway through your programme. And then just see how long people last. Oh, I'd love that. That would be so good. <laughs> Oh, that would be wonderful. And, okay, so my big question, as someone who's clearly looked into this piece, Mm. about how long is a single statement of vexation? There is actually an online calculator. (laughs) (laughs) But but opinions vary, because people aren't entirely sure what Sati meant in his manuscript. Oh, wow, okay. And is it good? It's not bad, actually. It's very dissonant and kind of unresolving. Mm -hmm. If you remember, this is the 1890s. There is an argument that it was actually a statement of saying, well, this harmony is really not what you would consider conventional. But if Mm -hmm. you listen to it 840 times, by the end of that, you'll begin to appreciate it because it's become a convention for you over the last 18 hours. Yes, it is now conventional. You'll actually begin to get the idea of this new harmonic language. We are are so pliable. Other people have, however, suggested that it is just a sly jibe at Wagner. (laughs) I mean, in Gavin Breyer's words, it's a poor man's ring of the Nibelungen. (laughs) Of course, they interviewed Igor Levitt after his marathon performance. And there were some choice quotes from that. Mm. He said, I got so tired that literally my fingers stopped moving. In the middle, I looked at where I was and thought, there are still 590 to go. What the heck? (laughs) It took me about a half an hour to get through that. (laughs) Oh, my God. I didn't train for it at all. I tried to play it at home, but without pressure and without the actual thing happening, honestly, I just got bored. Right. And that seems to be very true. One wouldn't book a rehearsal um, (laughs) for this for this piece. Can we just take it again from uh, repetition 550? (laughs) 
Okay, guys, great. That was that was good. The odd numbered repetitions were they're just a little a little dry this next time round. I just want you to add a bit more life to that. Also, three hundred and fourteen. Loved what you did. Let's make them all like that. Three, two, one, go. Could you imagine having performed it once, performing it ever again? No, no, surely not. And neither can anyone else. Is what you're going to tell me. Let me introduce you to pianist Armin Fuchs, who has performed it at least a half a dozen times. Oh my goodness me. And much more slowly too. His version is a much more stately 28 hours long. And again, this sounds unmistakably like one pianist. (laughs) It is one pianist. And brilliantly, back in 2000, he actually had himself connected up to an EEG machine that recorded his brainwaves the whole time. And you can download the data set. I'm sure they did. And thank goodness they did. What would we be without the Academy of Academics? His isn't the longest version, though. Okay. French pianist Nicolas Horval performed the longest ever one-man rendition in 2012 that lasted 35 hours. I mean, how the hell would you stay awake for 35 hours playing the same piece? I mean, really, that's an astonishing feat of endurance. I can imagine that being a transcendental experience, you know, for audience and performer. But tough. But tough. I I I mean, in 1970, the pianist Peter Evans quit after 595 repetitions. What? Saying... Pianists who take on vexations do so at their own great peril. That seems like the strangest time to quit. You are three quarters of the way there. I don't know. I mean, you've still got like 245 repetitions to go. (laughs) If you started hallucinating by that point, I think you wouldn't want to continue. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of... You know, meditation forms that involve repeated stacking of stones or yes. or shamanic traditions, which across different cultures tend to feature a single drum beat at a steady rhythm until that just kind of becomes your entire world. Yes. In 2018, Adam Neely, who we've talked about before on this program, oh, yes. got 2.1 million views for playing a single lick on his bass guitar. I saw a- all of it? No, I just saw that he'd done that. But how long did he do it for again? He did it for five hours. Ugh. Nothing. Amateur. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, I think in which case we should leave the last word to Igor Levitt. Okay, yes, please. Who also in interviews said, this was the first time since the bloody iPhone was invented that I didn't have it with me for 16 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to the bit of the show where I talk about something really stupid I did. So way back in the before times, there were buildings that large groups of people went into close together and watched other people relatively near them do performancey things. Hard to believe. Seems inconceivable. Um, And in some of those places, the ones performing musicals, the musicians were in fact just rammed into something literally called a pit, Hmm. which I've never really considered before now, but it says a lot about their kind of social standing (laughs) in the pecking order. You know, the actors are on a stage, the audience is in an auditorium, the musicians are in a pit. A hovel. (laughs) Yes, there you go. A dent in the ground. So, playing in a pit for a musical... A game, a nameless game, will often emerge after your 10th, 20th, 30th performance of the same show. Oh, God, yeah. And I I always think of it as past the theme. And it's a very simple game. (laughs) Someone will integrate a well-known motif into their part. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And the idea is that it will be subtle enough that no one in the audience will notice, but for anyone in the pit who's heard the music 5,000 times before... Kind of a musical joke. Yeah, absolutely. 
And then it's the job of everyone else in the pit to try and find a place to insert either that motif or another motif from that same piece or by that same composer. It's got to be related. Yeah. yeah. And you just kind of pass that around the pit. And I've met musical directors yeah. who consider this the height of unprofessionalism, <laughs> who will absolutely <laughs> chew out a musician for even a hint of this game taking place. A hint of da 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 da. Yes, completely. <laughs> completely. That's a reliable one. My two favourites are the opening to the Rite of Spring. Uh, oh, da 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 da, that one. Yeah, yeah. All right, great. I tend to do that one when I'm playing on dulcimer because I've always got some chunk in the show where I'm just playing like twinkly nothings. They say, can you just do some dulcimer filly in stuff here, please? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where Igor Stravinsky will, will rock up almost always. <laughs> and then my other one is, is is Maria from West Side Story. Okay, right. One sharp for five, one sharp for five. And then, then you go back into your part. Yes, yes. I love both of those because you can, with so few notes, get looks of recognition from around you. And yet, because there are so few notes, it has that wonderful whiff of plausible deniability. I, no, completely. <laughs> this is also... <laughs> you can go, oh... Did I? Was it? <laughs> I just played a one sharp four and a five. Like, I don't think three notes is necessarily enough to fire me. Yeah. Musical directors put a blanket ban on any of this sort of nonsense. Um, <laughs> consider it disrespectful to the work, mm. disrespectful to the audience. Now, I actually have the opposite view. Okay, okay, right. I think it's musicians keeping themselves awake and alert and keeping themselves playful. And engaged as well. And engaged, yes. If you just switched off, you could easily end up basically playing something completely wrong and not noticing. Yes. In fact, when I was a choir boy, I might have said this before, mm -hmm. we sang the Psalms every day for the five years I was a choir boy. Okay. And there are only 150 of them. Right. And we didn't sing all of them anyway. And I vividly remember one time standing up to sing the psalm mm. and then sitting down and having no idea whether I had actually sung it or not or whether I just stood there completely gormless and not opened my mouth. Right. Because it had become so second nature. Yep. And I could have sung something completely different and, and maybe just not noticed. And I had to ask someone whether I'd sung it. <laughs> And pit bands are full of that kind of story. Someone coming into the pit and setting up their music and instruments for Act One, only to be nudged in the shoulder and told that they've actually just done Act One and we're in the second half now. But <laughs> it's so many, you've done it so many times that none of it registers. Gotcha. There's a bigger question as to why are there live bands in West End musicals still. Hmm. It's sad to say, but I think it's because there are strong unions. Oh, right. In, in most shows, the band is completely hidden. You wouldn't know they were live to look at it. No, they play to a click, often with backing tracks included. Yes. Uh, which used to not be allowed by the unions. Wow. And, and right. as an audience member, you wouldn't know. It could be off a CD. Mm. And so it's easy to become a robot in that job. I just have to shout out there are modern musicals like The Band's Visit, like Hades Town, who are front and centering the band and who have impro breaks. And, and Cirque du Soleil have the band kind of on stage, don't they? Yes, absolutely. They, they make the fact that they've employed musicians, they actually turn into... A feature, yeah. A feature, and I think that's wonderful. But especially for anonymous musicians in a pit, um, I think these games are actually vitally important. Yeah. They keep the music more alive than it would be otherwise. Mm. And it may surprise you to know... In all my various screw-ups, I've never actually dropped the ball hard playing past the theme. <laughs> I don't have a facepalm here. This has been just fine for me. Wow. What I didn't know okay. is that actors have a version of this game too. 
So uh, a few years ago, I was acting in a play in Rome, a lovely ancient theatre under the streets. Wow. Great show. And we were lucky enough to have quite a long run, which is when I discovered the actor's version of this game. (laughs) The actor's version of this game, again, has no name. It's just a thing that people do. But if I were to name it, I guess I would name it keep a condom on the stage for as long as possible without the audience noticing. <laughs> and the game is playing. <laughs> you see, I had the idea that this might be some kind of Shakespearean quotation game or something highbrow or, or something where people had to adapt their lives to some kind of curveball. I mean, it reminds me of this dinner table game that me and my friends and my brothers and I used to play mm. where each thing that you said had to start with the next letter of the alphabet without anyone else realising. Oh, what fun. Such a fun game. Yes, yes, yes. And I thought this theatre game might be something highbrow, but no, it's nothing to do with the text at all. Oh, it's brilliant. Go on. Nothing nearly that classy. <laughs> the text is untouchable. So <laughs> the rules of the game, such as they are, actors not being as classy as us musicians, is just that at some point in the play, someone will come on stage with a wrapped up condom secretly in their hand yeah and it will often be someone who has a handshake early on in their scene and the first anyone else will know about this game is during the handshake it's when they feel this slightly prickly uh, crinkly thing in their palm yes <laughs> you know and there's there's a thousand ways i've seen it started maybe someone will preset it hidden in a book that someone else has to open at some point in the play <laughs> Like to go time bomb gang. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Or it's in their cup when they take a drink or something. Mike, yes, every single variation. Oh. And the the rule is that it can't leave the stage, of course. All right. And at some point, every actor is going to leave the stage, so they have to have passed it on by then. Mm. This is the ticking time bomb of it all. So you can't just receive it and accept it lightheartedly. That's that's in poor sport. So, for what it's worth, if you go out and see a West End show, there is a 30% chance that there is a condom somewhere on the stage. <laughs> You've killed it for me now. I'm forever going to be looking for the condom now. <laughs> it won't be, oh, let's go see a so-and-so show. Let's go see Hunt the Condom. <laughs> oh, that is just priceless. Isn't it wonderful? And I, but I have... we are in the face palm slot, which can <laughs> only mean one thing. Well, I have bad news for you, Mike, is that you will probably never see the condom. Because actors know this is a game. Right. And they're good at it. Consummate condom passing professionals. Absolutely they are. (laughs) Condom concealment is high on their list of skills. High on the list of any good actor's skills. (laughs) And, you know, of course, if it gets too difficult, then because they all know the score, they will simply ditch the game and serve the play. So that it's great. It's a good game and it's good for the same reasons that Pass the Theme is a good game. It keeps the actors alive and aware. Now, there is a danger of corpsing, though, to be fair. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Corpsing games are a whole different one. Then again, I suppose that's part of the appeal with any kind of actorly gag, is that you're trying to get other people's corpse. My favourite one of those was, it was a Shakespeare play, at one point someone had to open a big scroll, and every single night, he was told to stop so many times, but every single night, a particular mysterious actor would put something else in the scroll for the person to see. And it started out, it started out simple, it was just like, it was a drawing of a willy, and then it was a, a silly poem. <laughs> And the one which actually got him sent to the artistic director and which tragically stopped this game, he had taped a photo of himself fully nude, arms outstretched and grinning, into this scroll. I was fortunate enough to be standing behind him every night at this moment, so I got to I got to have a look in. And just this spread-eagle, joyful starfish. He nearly lost it that time, and he was absolutely furious afterwards, which is fair enough. Anyway, back to this play, my ignorance and my ultimate downfall. 
I wasn't aware of this game. I'd never played this game before. Mm. And the very first I knew of it, yeah. I was on stage delivering <laughs> lines and someone pressed something into my hand. Mm. My brain was immediately going a million miles a minute. My first thought was that something had gone wrong. There had to be an on-the-fly change to the play and this was a note <laughs> telling me what I had to do. And so I, I took a beat, waited till the focus was elsewhere and then I had a look and saw that it was a packaged condom. And in a moment that I will never quite be able to explain, and which I'm sure did nothing at all for my sexiness and suaveness rating, I dropped it on the floor like it was a hot coal, <laughs> which made a sound. There is an unmistakable sound. Unmistakable. Because it has a slight hollowness to it, that kind of packet, doesn't it? Props to the Durex branding people. It's immediately recognisable, <laughs> even from a sick throw seat. <laughs> and the actors heard it too. And for a very brief moment, everything stopped. <laughs> and at this point, everything had already gone wrong, but it got worse. Oh. So, I should, you know, I have to ask this. What do you do? Do you stoop down and pick it up and put it in a pocket, thus just kind of acknowledging this whole thing? Do you try and kick it off the stage? Oh. Do you try to incorporate it into a play set in around 1750? You're in a, such a tough bind there as well. What do you do? I mean, it's difficult as well because, I mean, you're more a musician than you are an actor. I think you would say yourself. Absolutely. And you could expect someone who was there all day and had played that game a million times would have basically their nuclear option the answer they would have something that in the worst case you could do and you just don't have that backstop to fall back on absolutely not the experience of dealing with the condom game <laughs> it's like your first outing you get hit with a situation where you need the nuclear option you don't have yes yes the problem is just because you know everyone knows it's not like you can just subtly put your foot over it and stay rooted to that point in the stage <laughs> no. maybe if you could have just nonchalantly dropped your kerchief on the floor over it <laughs> Actually, that would have been marvellous. That might have been the solution. I think that would have been the answer. <laughs> I must insist on a kerchief being part of my costume. Ah, uh, yes, I'm just getting my costume on and I'm just stowing my nuclear kerchief. <laughs> yes, there you go. Please set the nuclear kerchief. Yes, it was one of those very, very long moments. How did it resolve, though? I'm on tenterhooks. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> what I went for in the end, I had a couple of lucky things. Primarily that I was with a very good, humoured and expert cast. Right. And also that my character was a bit of a low-stakes punching bag who was particularly unlucky in love. Ah, okay. So in the end, I picked it up off the floor yeah. and I took the moment uh, and everyone, everyone could have stayed quiet. And I accepted the awkwardness of the situation and, and the fact that it, I completely stopped the scene. I looked pleadingly at my various co-actors and I sighed and said, I guess I won't be needing this anymore. Yeah. Put it in my pocket and we carried on. I think that's quite elegant. I mean, I do agree that humour would probably be the way to bridge the gap there. Yes. So that you can get back in and it's dispersed. The tension's released. Given that I was in a period play with a condom on the floor, it went very well. Now, the best scenario is to just not wind up there. If you were not aware that this game was going on, the question is, what the hell is going through your mind when you see this condom? Because you're in a play with a bunch of people that you're just still getting to know, and one of them hands you a condom. Are you meant to take that as a message? It's like, oh, I never knew you felt that way kind of thing. It's funny you should ask, because looking back on it now, that absolutely should have been the question at the front of my mind. What on earth is this condom <laughs> doing on this stage? It didn't even occur to me until after the show. Talk me through the microsecond by microsecond decision process here that culminated <laughs> in you dropping this thing like a hot potato then. Once I had seen it, I identified it. I think my single only <laughs> terribly misguided thought was 
My character shouldn't be holding this. Let's give it to everyone else instead. <laughs> Let's share this with my colleagues on stage. And so I did. This needs to be appreciated more widely. Yes, maybe they can help me figure out what this is and what I need to do with it. Let's throw this open. Let's discuss this in the round. <laughs> Let's throw this out to the group. Quite literally. <laughs> You know, looking back on it now, yeah. and with your suggestions as well, I've realised that I did miss a trick, that the right answer mm. would have been to scoop it straight up and take it to a, a woman sitting in the front row mm. with a, madam, I think you've dropped something. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of put it directly in her handbag, ideally. <laughs> Don't even hand it to her. <laughs> Tuck it in her top pocket kind of thing. Top pocket? No, that's the answer. That's absolutely the answer. And then once you put it in, they give it a little pat. <laughs> yes! Not every day can be scones, clotted cream, and a homemade marmalade. There are days where the humble slice of toast still takes precedence. And with that in mind, I'm going to present this month's Toast Foley. Now, Mike, I'm going to have to ask you to shut your eyes for this, because I want you to have a proper guess. Uh, okay, okay. Here we go. I would say that's in my top five toast fairly for me, yeah. Okay, wow, thank you. I'd have trouble picking that out of a lineup. Well, what's lucky is that this is something that any of our listeners can absolutely recreate this one at home. Mm. What I've created here is both a toast foley and my thoughts on possible issues of sustainability of this segment of our podcast, Mike. Because when searching around, all I managed to find that would make the sound and I haven't already used sometime in the last 26 <laughs> things we found that sound like toast is a piece of petrified wood from California Wow! scraped with a quill pen. Now, it worked, and that's great, but this is where I'm at at the moment. It was good. I'm not sure how many more months I'll be able to... I think, I think this is the point at which we really hit our stride. I mean, this will be the purple patch. When we've gone through all those obvious toast foley options... Okay, I hear that. ...really have to extend our creativity in the toast area... <laughs> I, I guess so. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe this is going to usher in a new age of creativity and craziness. We haven't done much in the digital space, actually, now that I think about it. No, that's true. There may yet be some sort of comb-filtered white noise. We've been distressingly traditional about our <laughs> insistence on acoustic toast foley so far. That's true. But look, we've got our delicious slice of toast. You got any jam for me? Do I have jam for you? Now, it seems like it's been a month for it this month, but delving back into history. Back in 1968, Wendy Carlos released what has become one of the most seminal synth albums ever, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you'll be able to tell me the name of. Switched on Bach, I believe. It is indeed. A selection of 10 famous Bach compositions recorded using a Moog modular synth and a custom 8-track tape recorder. A monophonic synth is my favourite part of that story. Absolutely. So every bit of harmony had to be multi-tracked. Just amazing. And one must assume there must have been some kind of track bouncing on some of them as well, because some of mm. them are quite complicated, like Brandenburg Concertos and things. Mm. It did apparently take them a thousand hours to record. Wow! But it was huge. I didn't realise how huge, actually, until I did my research. It topped the Billboard classical chart from January 1969 until January 1972. You're joking. Three years solid. That's insane. We, we were talking last month about how the huge classic hits didn't always perform particularly well on the charts when they were first released. Yeah. This is the... I mean, it, it's famous, but three years. It won three Grammys as well. I hadn't realised it won Grammys. <laughs> and best of all, it won the Best Engineering Classical Grammy. Really? <laughs> 
if someone had said to you, reach the peak of your electronic music career by winning the Best Engineering Classical Grammy Award. <laughs> there must have been so many earnest, cautious mic placement professionals who got just furious yes. at that. Another few fun bits of trivia about it. Um, the first one is there was a quote from Glenn Gould, who of course did that famous recording of the Goldberg Variations. Yes. And he said, the whole record is one of the most startling achievements of the record industry in this generation, and certainly one of the great feats in the history of keyboard performance. That Okay, anyone who hasn't had the chance to listen to Glenn Gould, he is the Jeff Buckley of interpreting piano Bach stuff. He's, he's just amazing. Because apparently Wendy Carlos was saying that it was really quite difficult to play a lot of those lines because of the way the monophonic synths work. To get the notes to attack repeatedly, you had to make sure that you released a note before you put the next one down. Interesting. Because it's also with when the envelope's triggered and stuff. Because this is before the mini mode. Yeah, this this thing was the size of a, a huge dresser. This well, you can see it on the cover of the album. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It's basically a baroque living room with Bach kind of sitting there on a on a chair mm -hmm. with headphones, and then this modular synth set up behind him. That's a really lovely image. But that's my second bit of trivia because there are actually two versions of the original artwork. Oh yeah. And in the first version, he's standing up rather than sitting down, or the other way around. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wendy Carlos rejected it because the headphones in the picture were plugged into an input rather than an output. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just love. Look, ordinarily, <laughs> I would call Diva on that, but once you've spent a thousand hours recording something, I think you're allowed to care about the little things. It matters. Yeah. And apparently also, it was plugged into a filter module that had nothing feeding it, so even if there'd been <laughs> it, it's like... Although I do slightly resent her denying people kind of like us the pleasure of being in this time yes. and being able to... Someone would one day notice and it would become like this golden Easter egg. I wonder, though, whether when they reset it for the second picture, mm. whether she tweaked the sound. Because, no, that doesn't sound quite right. And, and adjusted the filter. <laughs> I wonder if the photo is clear enough to recreate the noise. That, <gasps> that might be the real Easter egg. Wow. What is the sound on the cover? I think he's standing in front of part of it. Ah. Anyway, but as wonderful as that record is... It isn't actually my jam. Oh, oh no. Tell me more. You see, in 1972, four years later, Columbia released Switched Off Bach, mm. which was an orchestral album with the same track listing. I think they think they're cleverer than they are. Yeah. Yeah. Columbia. And musician Joe DeGeorge in 2011 realised that this was a massive wasted opportunity. And so he decided to release his own Switched Off Bach album. It's starting to all make sense. <laughs> and just like Wendy Carlos, he performed several Bach works on an analogue synth. Right. But with it switched off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So all you get is several tracks of the sounds of his fingers on the keys while he plays well-known works by Bach. Okay, this okay. So yesterday, Mike, you sent me an MP3 of this with no context, no explanation. And your first comment was, "Well, I, I wrote notes, and so this is my my thoughts in real time on listening to this car door typewriter without the clack door handle." Oh, MIDI keyboard. Definitely MIDI keyboard. All right. <laughs> and then I, I wrote to Mike saying, well, assuming that you played me something on your keyboard for me to hear, and I said, Mike, hey, no worries. It happens to the best of us. You've recorded the wrong source. Right. Yeah, you, you saw you saw the waveform. It looked about right. But you've just recorded from the wrong source. No worries. Send me what you actually meant. I got an email back saying, nope. 
It's all good. <laughs> and then was confused for a whole day. <laughs> Did you recognise the piece? I didn't, but let me tell you what I think. Because the opening rhythmic motif, which repeats a few times, yeah. is a kind of, but a gum, but a <laughs> And that makes me think harpsichord. Okay. Because there's that funny technique on harpsichord where you play a big chord all a bit different tempo and get that <laughs> noise. <laughs> to use the technical term. But I can't think of a Bach piece I know that starts <laughs> with, with that much strength. It's well, been... do you recognise this one? It is Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Is it really? It is totally. And in fact, later on in the thing, you can hear him doing the... But, I mean, credit to the guy. He's absolutely hammering that keyboard. He's really whacking it. I fear for the safety of the keyboard. Right. <laughs> to be honest, there's four or five different tracks on that album. And I'm amazed that MIDI keyboard lasted. Yeah. You can hear it creaking and objecting. So I wonder whether this is kind of... I don't know whether this is some kind of a statement. I... <laughs> It feels to me like someone I mean, being, are we driving technology to breaking point? I think it's, I'm a clever, clever dick. <laughs> Call me smart ass, smug, smug face. Is, I think, the clarion call of this particular piece. I don't think I see quite the philosophical intent. But, I mean, the thing is, wouldn't that purpose have been served perfectly well by just doing one of them? <laughs> and there are four or five. No, I, I, yeah. There's also a great quote on his band camp page. Oh, yeah? It says... There exists a mix of each track in which the synthesizer is turned on, but it is antithetical to the concept and the purpose of this album to include such a mix here. (laughs) So here's my question to you, Mike. Now that you get it, will you ever listen to it again? I don't know. Oh, yeah? I mean, it does have a useful secondary purpose that one of the people who commented on the Bandcamp site and supported the, the, the record said... It's a great thing to play over my computer speakers to make my boss think that I'm working. Because <laughs> it sounds like I'm typing furiously. Yeah, well, no, with real enthusiasm as well. It's kind of like an audio Zoom backdrop, isn't it? That's true. <laughs> I don't know that we can credit the composer, yes. or at least the, the performer, with that secondary use. Mm, mm. For example, Mike, penicillin was discovered from the mould on a scientist's sandwich, you know, as the famous story goes. Yeah. We don't go back to that deli and call them, you know, revolutionary <laughs> medical scientists because <laughs> they're not. They just made a sandwich and a not very good one with slightly old bread. Yes. I think that's how I feel about this. The unintended consequences of that sandwich aren't credited to the sandwich artist. Nor should they be. But this is not the end of my jam because there's bonus jam. There's a second helping. Further jam. Squidging out the sides. Because this is Joe DeGeorge's only Bach record. <laughs> He's also done another fabulous Bach release. This has, I think, um, seven different tracks on it. Mm-hmm. But these are all the same piece of music. They're all Bach's two-part invention, number eight, BWV779. Is this the second audio sample you sent me? It is. <laughs> now, I, I have to say, from that, I have the notes that I took on that as well, but I have no idea where this is going to go. <laughs> Well, what you're listening there to is track seven of this record. Okay. It's a record called In Glove with Bach. And for track one, he plays this piece as you would normally. Mm-hmm. In the second track, he plays it with thin latex gloves on. <laughs> In the third track, 
He moves to thicker fingerless gloves, <laughs> moves through ski gloves to mittens, and finally, boxing gloves. <laughs> okay, that one I like. I really like that idea. That one. <laughs> I think it warrants full album listening, that does. I completely see. That, to me, that's William Basinski's disintegration loops for the modern generation. Yes. Oh, wow, I hadn't made that connection. Because it slowly falls apart with time. So have you listened to track one? Yes. Is it a decent rendition? Yeah, it's okay. It doesn't blow me away. It's to the point. But, you know, it doesn't really matter in some respects because you're just waiting. All you're doing in that first rendition is waiting (laughs) to compare it to the following ones. It's like the control group. Because we've talked so much about artificial intelligence in the last few episodes. <laughs> I wondered whether I might get you with that. I absolutely went there. I assumed that this was, you know, a not very good program trained on not very good training data trying to recreate <laughs> piano music because, you know, there's this just discernible intention or, or ideas behind it, but, but barely. And so that, that immediately made me think, well, this is AI, isn't it? This is machine learning. Yeah. So you got me. You got me good. Good old Bach. That is pushing the envelope, as always. All of which means that it is almost time for us to bid you, dear listeners, farewell, but not before. We have thanked our sponsor for this month, Surreptitious Industries, um, who have released a new product that they wish to publicise on our esteemed podcast. Cannot wait. Their new sneaker gnome. (laughs) It looks to all intents and purposes like a traditional metronome. Okay. But the extra feature that Surreptitious Industries have incorporated into this metronome is that it gradually changes tempo... (laughs) without telling you. (laughs) Thank God! (laughs) It will start at the set tempo. And then depending on the setting, it will either gradually drift slower or gradually drift faster or just drift generally and you're not quite sure which way it's going. Well, my prayers and the prayers of many musicians I know have finally been answered. There are thousands of use cases I can think of, but what are some that you've got? I mean, if you let the tempo slowly drift slower, Mm -hmm. then it improves your bow control and your breath control if you're practicing along with it. If you let it go faster, it means that difficult bits, you slowly have to perform them faster and faster, and then when you play them at the real tempo, you feel much more secure in your technical ability. How... Wonderful. At last, this has come along. And of course, as I'm sure you already um, intuited, that in the one where the tempo just drifts a bit randomly, it's to practice your ensemble listening skills. <laughs> as the tempo drifts, you have to follow the metronome. It's a little bit like, you know, the real group have this all ears workshop series where they do exercises like that. It's just an extension of this established didactic methodology. How incredibly enlightened. So, Basically, you've got one for when you forget the words or forget the music and you have to slow everything down and still keep it together. You've got one for when everything speeds up and you've got one for when you're just playing with musicians who can't count Mm. or keep time. Mm. That's what this is preparing you for. And simultaneously making you. Okay, yes, amazing. (laughs) And it's available for $49.99 at all good stockists. It may show up on your credit card bill as being $54.99, or it may be $45.99. It just depends. I love their commitment to a concept there. That's inspiring. Mm. I'm proud to have them on this, our flagship show. Now, if you also would like to uh, support our noble noble attempts at nonsense, then please do head over to our Patreon campaign and uh, support this independent podcast. We have extras. Oh, we have extras extras for patron supporters. Um, We have Beethoven, Not Going Deaf, and we have Billie Eilish on guitar, amongst many (laughs) other goodies. I always love your mini summaries of the extras, because it it lets me remember... (laughs) 
<laughs> I always have half a second of, gosh, did we? Did we say that? <laughs> then, then I come back to it. It's it's a really nice trip down memory lane. So are you plugging anything, John? Well, sure. We have our contact details. We are available on Twitter at PSTB Tweets. We are available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash PSTB Books. We are even young and cool as we are on TikTok. Indeed. I myself am at PSTB T-I-K-S, whereas Mike is at PSTB T-O-K-S. Hashtag failure. <laughs> Hashtag losing pretty hard at time of recording. Um, but, you know, no judgment, but losing pretty hard. <laughs> you can get us on email at tbreak at projectstudiotbreak.com. Awesome. Uh, also, want to take this moment to use our humble little soapbox in the corner of a busy road uh, to say, get out there, read, learn, listen, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Uh, at BLM UK. Uh, on Facebook and on Twitter or if you're international Google Black Lives Matter and I believe you'll be taking good places from there thank you so very much for listening ta-ra ta-ra pets this is a public service announcement from the serious podcasting voice in breaking news the latest figures just in at PSTB ticks 54 likes at PSTB talks 57 likes. In a press release, a spokesman for Team Barry said, In your face, John, you got royally pwned.